Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. We're ready to start John chapter 15 this morning. Can you believe it? We finally got to John chapter 15. What a beautiful, beautiful chapter. We're going to really love take drink in all of the, the beautiful uh, beautiful teaching that Jesus has. Chapter 15 and chapter 16 represent a long discourse of teaching by Jesus, of his apostles that last night, to his apostles. So um, if you have your prayer cards, get your prayer cards out. We'll pray. Pray before Bible study. Thank you for coming back after two weeks off. At, I, I told you what now amounts to three weeks ago, I would just be gone the next week. But then I forgot the next week was spring break, so made sure we put it in the bulletin. And hopefully nobody came. Did you come? Did anybody come and just be like, where is that guy? So good. Thank, thank the Lord. Uh, thank you. Watch the bulletin. It'll always say if we're meeting or not. Um, let us pray before we begin. Pray with me. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity. With the pure light of your divine knowledge, open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, And unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, it is, I've been anxious to start chapter 15 in the Gospel of John, because it is, it's just one of the most beautiful chapters uh, ever written. Um... I want to speak just a little bit about the, uh, the the kind of the flow of where we're at from chapter 14 into 15. We've been for a while now, we've been in that last night of Jesus' life. You know, the night of the last supper. The last time he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, his apostles. And then we're, we left off last week with this thought where Jesus said at the end of chapter 14, Arise. Let us be going. Now, this is a good illustration of why we don't read the book of John like it's just a chronological telling of a story. Okay, because it would make you ask the question, well, last week he said, arise, let us be going, and now he's going to talk to him for two more chapters (laughs) and talk a lot in these next two chapters. Um, Were they just talking while they're walking out to the garden? What were they doing? Well, no, We we want to kind of stop and think, this is still in the upper room, Okay, this whole discourse between chapter 15 and 16 is still in the upper room. But we want to look at what part of the evening they're at since, since he said, arise, let us be going. There is, as we know, Jesus was there to celebrate the Passover supper for his final time before the cross with them. So we want to look just a little bit into the Passover supper and its traditions to understand at what point in the evening some of these things are happening, okay? Now, 
So that's where I'll begin. But before we do that, let's read the scripture. I'm going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses to you. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you will, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's stop there, the reading of the gospel. Um, So, as I mentioned, we are now in, we're still in the upper room, but we've reached a point in the upper room where at the supper, the, the supper is pretty well over, okay? But there's still more to be said. There are four cups that figure into the Passover dinner. Okay, the Seder Supper, as it's called. The Passover dinner, there are four cups. I've listed those four on the board here for us um, because they're important for us to think through as we come to this point. In uh, How many of you have ever been to a Seder Supper, a Passover Explained? I did one here uh, several years ago. I didn't know if any of you were there or not. couldn't remember who I was there. We had a pretty big, pretty big group in here. It's fun. It's wonderful. It's really, uh, we, we do it as a Messianic Seder Supper. Okay, so we explain how Jesus fulfills. Was that fulfills. the Bible study that you had in here? You had this one, two guys here? Uh, no, 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 that was different. This is going back probably, ooh, how many, several years, okay. six or eight years maybe. But uh, it was, uh, we set the room up just like we would have said. We had the meal cooked and everything. And uh, the four, four, it's not literally four cups for every person, okay? But the cup is filled with wine four times in the supper. And each one of those fillings of the cup represents something. And, of course, the story of the Passover is to represent the deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage, from slavery, especially the slavery with Pharaoh in, in Egypt. To recall, that's when it was instituted, on the night they were before they left Egypt, before they were redeemed, if you will. And so the very first cup, as you come through that supper, and I won't take time to explain the whole supper, but it's called the, the, the cup of Kedush. That's the Hebrew word for sanctification. So the first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second cup, at a different point in the meal, is called the cup of the plagues, and that's the remembering of the plagues that the uh, plagues that that Moses brought down, you know, that God gave him to bring down upon Pharaoh and upon the people of Egypt. 
So they remember the plagues uh, that they all suffered through. Of course, the final plague, you recall, was the, the death of the firstborn. That's right. And it was at that death of the firstborn, the angel of death was going to come and all the firstborn in Egypt would die. And it was at that that the blood of the Passover lamb was slain and the blood was painted on the doorposts, the lintels. Okay? This is a, a doorpost. It goes across and then down. And so you would paint the blood like that. That's interestingly, it's in the shape of a cross. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, so they would brush that blood on there. And any house that had the blood on it, on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. The firstborn would not die. And we know the rest of the story. Pharaoh's son even died. Um, so <clears throat> that was the cup of the plagues to remember. And that was their, in that was the, the great Passover, the Paschal lamb. The Passover lamb was, was uh, slain for their redemption. So the third cup is called the cup of redemption. Okay, or sometimes it's called the cup of blessing. You could use either word there. So I'll write that up here. It's sometimes called the cup of blessing. Some of these get different different names. Okay, and it's this cup, the third cup of blessing. This is the cup that Jesus shared his institution of what we would call Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. When it came time for this third cup, the cup of blessing. How do we know this? Because we see it twice. In Luke 22, Jesus himself says, this is the cup of my blood. This is the cup. And it's the only one. It was the blood of the lamb back in a couple of thousand years earlier, okay, that freed them from Egypt. But now it's the cup of my blood, Jesus says. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of a new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for many so that sins may be forgiven. So it's the cup of a new covenant. Now, we could read in the First Corinthian letter, the Apostle Paul in chapter 10, speaking about this Eucharistic meal and giving instruction to them because they haven't been celebrating with the right spirit. He says, is not this cup the cup of blessing? Okay, so again, reaffirmation. This is the point in the meal in the evening of the Passover that Jesus stops, lifts the cup, and hallows the idea of the cup of his blood. Okay, institution of this beautiful sacrament uh, that we celebrate. Now, there's one more cup. And at that point, the dinner's over. Okay, the dinner is over. But there's some great psalms to be sung. Specific psalms out of the book of Psalms are sung as a great praise. So there's one last cup. And that cup is the cup of Hallel. Hallel, does anybody know what Hallel? It's another Hebrew word. Anybody know what Hallel means? I put it up here for you. Pray. Hallelujah. You've heard of the, you know, you can hear where it comes from. Hallelujah, right? The word hallelujah is a compound word in Hebrew. Hallel, which means to praise, Yah from the very first of the word Yahweh, the name of God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Okay, so um, in, it, it, it is in this time, as they're getting ready to lift the cup of praise, that we believe Jesus took time to share these words of John chapter 15 and John chapter 16. The other Gospels all talk about the meal. 
John talks about the words Jesus taught during the You notice that John doesn't even mention, really, the supper in, in, in like the other Gospels do. He's concerned with teaching what Jesus means by the supper. The, John's great teaching about the importance of the sacrament of, of uh, Holy Communion is his teachings in John chapter 6, which we were in quite a while back. We talked about Jesus said, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. That's where John brings out all those teachings. But here, he's got a point, and he's about to tell, he's about to tell them one last parable. He's going to use one big last metaphor. Chapter 15 and 16 are set up with this metaphor of the vine. It is a beautiful metaphor. We want to, and, and so as we read the scripture earlier, that's what Jesus, he starts out by saying, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. Well, now, why does John put that word in there, true? What does that tell us? Pure, complete. Okay, pure and complete. What else might it suggest? Somebody else might have said they were before that. Yeah. There, if, there's some, if he wants to emphasize something's true, then there must be a false. Right? Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to emphasize the truth. Who's the false vine? <clears throat> Think back to your Old Testament metaphors. Would it be the devil? No. no. Think back to your false metaphors. I mean the metaphors of the Old Testament. On, on, the, on, the, uh, on the temple itself, one of the car- ornate carvings in the temple itself on the doors and things were grapevines. Okay. Grapes have always been a symbol. The grapevine has always been a symbol of Israel. The nation of Israel, God's people, were the vine. But they were a false vine. Unfortunately, they were a false vine. Now, how do we know this? Let's just read a little bit. Let's let's go back to some of my favorite depictions of this. Let's Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, let me turn to the Isaiah chapter 5. I th- you could also read about it in Jeremiah, Hosea. There are many places in the Old Testament where specifically Israel is alluded to as a vine, a grapevine. But I think Isaiah does it well in chapter 5. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is kind of, it's prose. It's it's written in the narrative form here in the Bible. It's prose, so it's scripted out in verse, not in like uh, sentences. Uh, That's to tell you and alert to you that this is a hymn, this is a song. This is a, a poem that's being sung by Isaiah. So verse chapter 5. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Okay? Who's the beloved? Isaiah is singing to God, the Father, Yahweh. And I'm going to sing a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared it out and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. That's, that's a quotation. That's in quotation marks, what I'm reading now. So that's the, the voice of God speaking here. 
And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall. And it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. And I will also command the clouds that they not rain on it. And there's the end of the quotation. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath and a homer of seed shall yield one epaph. He goes on to sing, and and, and you get the feeling. I mean, we don't need to read the whole thing, but clearly the metaphor here is that Israel is the vineyard. God, the Father, is the the planter. He's the vine dresser. He planted this vineyard. And he expected good grapes. He did everything he could for it. He, He asked the rhetorical question, what more could I have done for you? I did everything for you. He killed their enemies. He gave them the land that was not even theirs. He cleared it for him. I mean, he did everything. Gave him a land flowing with milk and honey. Said, I'm going to establish my throne forever through David. I mean, if you think back on the story of the children of Israel, it was all about God's beautiful providential blessing, and they continually spurned him and turned away to follow other gods. Israel is the false vine. Now, Fast forward to, you could read the same thing in Jeremiah in different ways, and Hosea and some other prophets. But let's go back to our text here in in the New Testament. So there are three people that we are going to talk about in this metaphor. We want to make sure we understand them all. Yes. I read the first, like, mm, I read the first ten verses. One through ten, yes. One through ten. Now, in Jesus' story here about the vine and the vine dresser, who who's the vine? Okay. The vine is Jesus. That's correct. Who's the vine dresser? That means the gardener, the tender, the one who plants and tills. God the Father. We'll just say Father. Okay. And then who are the branches? The people. In the specifically, as he's talking to them, them, they, the 11 disciples now, because Judas is already gone. So his disciples, we'll put here, okay, are the branches. And of course, as we're going to see, by inference, it's you and I also, 2,000 years later. At the end, at, at, as we get to chapter 17, we hear Jesus actually saying the words. Father, I'm not just praying for these. I'm praying for everyone that will ever believe because of them and their words. So it's for you and I, too. But specifically right now, it's it's for the disciples. Now, 
I think this is a fascinating metaphor to use. Can you imagine Jesus standing there in the table, at the table, and pouring the cup of blessing? I'm mean, pouring the cup of Hillel, okay? And he's already instituted the sacrament of his blood. He's already instituted before that in the beginning of the, the very beginning of the Seder Supper, he blesses the bread and says, This is my body. Um, that was the beginning of the supper. And, and now at the very end of the supper, the great praise of God is that Jesus is going to give them in this cup of praise a metaphor of grapes and grapevines and juice and fruit. Okay? What happens when you take grapes and you squeeze them, pulverize them? The juice comes out. Outpours juice. Outpours the juice of the fruit. What is about to happen? Absolutely, it represents the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the is the grapevine, and he's about to get hung on a cross, and he's about to be tortured, and he's about to be uh, wounded, and in fact, they stab him in the side and pours forth from his side blood and water. The image here is of the grape being squeezed. How do we make wine? We make it with grapes. We squeeze them. And they become for us a drink of nutrition. Okay. So there is the, at the back of this metaphor is this idea that Christ is, is showing forth what's about to happen. His being hung on the cross, hung on the tree. Okay, this beautiful vine is about to be hung on a tree, ripped out of the ground, hung on a tree, mistreated, pulverized, and bleed. But it's going to bleed juice. It's going to bleed wine. It's going to bleed blood, in other words, that becomes for us the drink of everlasting life, the drink of the new covenant, if you will. So let's begin with this, the first three verses. Jesus says, every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he, meaning the Father, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, I'm not an expert at horticulture and gardening. In fact, I've always loved roses, and I plant roses, and they never do well. And you know why they never do well? Because I don't prune them, because they take a lot of loving care, you know? And I imagine grapes, my mother planted grapes, and we had Concord grapes. And um, I can remember her pruning them. And it seemed to me, I remember saying to her, Mom, if you cut all those branches away, it's not, you're not going to have anything to bear fruit. And she said, oh, no, no. If it is pruned, it will bear more fruit. Okay. Now, there are, if you look on a grapevine, you're going to see lots of branches. And there needs to, if you have a branch that's not bearing any fruit, what's it doing? Stealing from the other ones. Yeah, because the life of the of the vine is flowing through the vine out into every branch, <clears throat> and the ones that aren't doing their job are just sucking the life out of the vine for no reason. This is the image Jesus is giving us for our life, our spiritual life in Christ. We are His. 
We are the creation of God. We are his fruit. We are the branches, if you will. And the fruit, the, our lives are to be the fruit. We're the branches. Our lives are to be the fruit. So if our lives are not producing fruit, well, at some point, the vine dresser is going to come along. He's going to clip them off, pull them off, throw them in a pile, and burn them. You can see the metaphor of life versus death. Okay? There's a lot of metaphors to be used here. Uh, so, how do we bear fruit? I don't know about you, but I want to bear fruit because I don't want to be plucked off and thrown away and burned up. I want to bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? That's the question of the day. How do we bear fruit? Do what? Follow the ways of Jesus. Follow the ways of Jesus. So let's look over here at verse 4, because I think you're onto something there. Verse 4 says, in my version it says, abide in me. Yours might say, remain in me. Okay, that, that remain, abide. Um, some versions might say, endure. Okay. Although most of them say remain and abide. And I want to look at that Greek word today. That Greek word is is this. It's pronounced meno. Meno. And meno is the Greek verb. It's a verb that talks about remaining. But it, it doesn't mean to just stay in an inactive way. It means to endure. Okay, so to abide, you get that word. The word remain even has a connotation of just just remaining, just just being there. But the word goes deeper than that. That's why I think some of the uh, richer traditions say abide. I know that sounds like an old-fashioned word, but it has a, a richer depth to it, abide. And the idea in the Greek is to remain fruitful, to be there, to endure. Okay, no matter what happens in this world, we remain in Christ. Above all else, remain in me. It's kind of the image that they're getting in the Greek language there. Now, before we got to that verse, let me just make a comment on verse 3. It's interesting that Jesus says, you are made clean. You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. What do you suppose Jesus meant by that? You are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. He says that right after the pruning comment and burning up the ones that don't. I think Jesus is showing them that, you know what I've been doing with you all these three years? I've been pruning you. I've been, you're already clean. You're a clean vine. You're a clean branch right now, okay? Because you've been with me three years and we've been through thick and thin and we've been through miracles and we've been through persecution and we've been on the run for our lives. We've been through all of this, but you are now clean, okay? In, in, uh, it's to represent that these disciples, these 11 men right there, they are already with Christ. They're ready to serve. They're not anointed yet until Pentecost, but they are with him. And by the fact that they are with him means they are with God and they are with the Holy Spirit. Okay. So he's promising them. Then let's go back to, uh, to this next set of verses. To abide in me and I in you. 
And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. He's warning them, you cannot bear any fruit unless you stay in me. You remain in me. You abide in me. Uh, Again, he repeats, he says here, I am the vine. Here he's just going to be specific. I'm the vine. You're the branches. That's verse 5. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So apart from me, you can do nothing. So the secret to bearing fruit for the kingdom of God is abiding in Christ. I think we need to just stop and dwell on that for a minute. How in the world do we stop and abide in Christ? Do we just make a proclamation of faith? We join a church. We go to church twice a month. Because, you know, the world's busy. We don't really have time to go to church every week. Have a one-on-one with him daily. Meditate on his word. Yeah, yeah. We have to have, we have to way more than the, I'm going to be a little harsh here this morning. I'm going to be a little harsh. Because I fear that the church of Jesus Christ in the modern world doesn't understand what it takes to remain in him. Okay, I know there are things that take us away and we can't be in church all the time, but what I'm observing in our world today is people that that don't even see the church as all that important. Now, I believe and that's what all counts, you know. Well, if, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is the church. St. Paul goes to great lengths to explain this in Ephesians and Colossians and other places. Jesus Christ is the church. The church is his body, and we are members of it. The church is integral to life in Christ. This modern notion that we can just believe, me and Jesus got our own thing going, don't really need the church. I'm sorry. That's not biblical. And it's not going to give us the nourishment. It's not going to keep us remaining in him. Okay? This vine idea, this vine analogy is so important because if the vine is separated, I mean the branch is separated from the vine, it doesn't get the nutrition. Now, I don't want us to miss the fact that, that we're talking about grapes and grape vines, not bananas and banana trees. Okay, we're, we're talking about what we have historically used and seen as what Christ used to provide the sacrament of his body and blood. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, that only happens in the church. That only happens in and through the church. That is a sacrament of the church. And it is our nourishment, our spiritual nourishment. And I question whether we really understand that in our, in our churches today of the modern world. But, but I want you to hear how important Jesus' words are that we remain in him. The only way to bear fruit for him is to remain in him. That means I need to figure out what it means to be in church, to be a part of church, to be a part of his body of Christ, to be a part of his word, to remain in it, to live and thrive in it. Because he's going to go on and, and describe it here. Um, verse 6, he says, if a man does not abide in me, he's cast forth. As a branch withers and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire and burned. 
But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. Here's that curious phrase of Jesus, this curious promise of Jesus again. Different places in the Gospels, Jesus promises, if you ask in my name, you shall have it. It shall be done for you. And this is, a, this is something we're talking about in our Wednesday night prayer class as well. If, you, if you're not part of that Wednesday night prayer class, Go back and listen to the one from two weeks ago. It's the only one up. And I describe what it means to ask in Jesus' name because we don't really understand that very well. And and I'll just give it to you briefly here uh, because that's kind of like an hour and ten minute podcast. But what it means is to abide in his... The name is the essence of a person. In the Old Testament, the under... You, God has many names, right? You know... Uh, there, he reveals himself, Elohim, Yahweh, you know, uh, El Shaddai, all these names. Each one of them reveals the character of God as he reveals himself to humanity. And, and it's understood that a name was important. You know, you've always even heard the phrase, well, uh, the black sheep of the family kind of sullies the family name, you know. The name means something. And this is the holy name of God. And Jesus is saying that uh, if you abide in me, you are in my name. So asking in his name is to ask in the person of Christ. And the only way we ask in the person of Christ is to be in union with him so well that we know what he wants us to ask for. The prayer that is offered because Jesus has given it to our spirit to pray it is the prayer that's in Jesus' name. It's not giving us a little code to say at the tack on at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen. That's what we do. And that's just what evangelicals do. We've got to say in Jesus' name, amen. Because we're taking scripture too literal there. Okay, The whole point is to just be in Christ and to abide. I'm, God doesn't care whether you say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or just end it in amen or whatever you do. The point is, are you praying in Christ? Are you living in his spirit, praying in his spirit? Are you allowing his spirit to guide your prayer life? That's why in the Lord's Prayer, it's, you know, give us this day our daily bread. You know, lead us, in other words. That's why Jesus prays in the garden, not my will, but thy will. For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever and ever. You know, there, this idea that, that we have this curious right here tucked away in the middle of this metaphor of the vine. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. I want you to think about his words for a minute. You know, we think, we, we, we rightly, we think of the Bible as his word, okay. Okay. But, but yet, this wasn't always there for them. The books of the New Testament, we think of that as the word of Christ. But it is, in, a, in an essence. But, but that wasn't always there for them either. They, these 11 disciples that become the apostles of Jesus Christ, they have the actual words of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And we're going to go on as we read. It's not this, not for this morning's lesson, but we're going to go on as we read these two chapters. And we're going to hear, I, I might be in next week's, so I can't remember where it follows in the book of John. But we're going to hear Jesus saying to them, I, everything the Father has given me, I've given to you. Can you imagine that those 11 apostles, I mean, we have to study the Bible. We have to diligently, we, we're just trying to figure out a fraction of what Jesus wants us to know. But God anointed them to know everything that Jesus shared with them. 
He's going to say later on in this in these chapters, he's going to say, I've got a lot more to say to you right now, and you can't bear it. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. All. Jesus, I'm getting ahead of myself because that comes later, but I want you to know what this means when Jesus says, abide in me, and if you ask for it, it shall be done for you. So I think the first way we look at that scripture is, is to look at the apostles in the church, the leaders of the church, asking how to lead the church. Because that's what their job was. When Jesus went back to heaven, they had to lead the church by, in, with, and under the power of the Holy Spirit. They had to lead the church. And they knew what to do. The Lord just had anointed them. He'd given them this knowledge. And, and I think it begs the question, did God leave the church without apostles when they all died? John, the author of this book, is the last one to die, according to tradition and history. He's the last one to die. He dies an old man. We don't even know specifically how he dies. We just believe he died of old age. Somewhere around the end of the first century, the beginning of the next one. Um, all the others, we believe, died martyrs' deaths. Tradition and history has shown different ways that they died martyrs' deaths. Now, so what happens to the church when these guys whom Jesus gave all this knowledge to pass away? Well, there's only one answer. Either Jesus left the church with blind to stumble through the world, or there were those disciples after them who they passed that knowledge onto and that anointing onto. That is called apostolic succession. We must understand that the Holy Spirit of God still leads his church and has throughout the ages. Okay? Has throughout the ages. Why do people feel called to become ministers of the gospel as a full-time Christian preaching, like myself, okay, go to the trouble to study and get ordained, and there is a laying on of hands? Why? Why we go through the ceremony? Because what we're doing and what we're saying is that we are carrying on that apostolic office. Now, I I'm in no way comparing myself to the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or John or any of those guys because I couldn't even hold a candle to them. But the calling is to lead the church through her offices. And the New Testament very specifically points out that there are bishops, presbyters, and deacons. Bishops, presbyters, and deacons. Three orders of ordained offices. We see them through the Apostle Paul laying his hands on them, ordaining them. We see this functioning as overseers of the church. And, uh, you know, in our church today, we have those three offices. We don't call the superintendent a bishop, but the word bishop means to superintend, to oversee. Um, John Wesley chose to call the men that he sent to America as superintendents and not try and confuse the office of the bishop because the problem was the bishops in England wouldn't send any bishops to America for John Wesley because they didn't like America because we were a revolutionary war at that point in time. So there was this break. But the idea is there. It's the, it's the bishop, the superintendent, the overseer. But the presbyter, that's the Greek word, presbyteros. That is the word for priest when you transliterate it out into English over time. Yeah, back then, or pastor, an elder, if you will. Back then, between that war, a lot of America spoke French. 
Yeah. And they didn't like it. They yeah. wanted to speak English, so the revolutionists made it English. Yeah, there was a strong French influence for a while there. Um, so I, I go I go down that little rabbit trail just because I want you to hear how important it is that Jesus is saying to them in verse 7, if you, you 11 here in the room before me, if you abide in my name and my words that I've spoken to you these last three years, not the books I just wrote, Jesus didn't write any books, okay? But if my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. And that's why Peter, James, and John could walk up to that man sitting outside the temple begging from them. And they didn't, it just said, what I, ha- I don't have silver and gold, but what I have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Because they knew that was God's will. They were walking in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So, he goes on and says <clears throat> that they're, ocu- they're doing that. Okay, They're working through that kind of, they're living this spirit-filled, anointed, ministerial life of the church is bringing glory to God. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. In other words, do something. Do lots of things in my name. The fruit is the action of the church. It was the action of the apostles. It was the action of the believers that became into the church then on the day of Pentecost. And it's the action of you and I today in our world. The fruit of God is the, is the life of the Christian lived out before the world to see in love. What is the fruit of our lives? It's the love we share with the world. God's love. Unconditional love. Agape love. That's the fruit of the vine that we're trying to show to the world. And it says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so then you prove to be my disciple. You can't prove that you're a disciple of Jesus just because you have a baptismal certificate. You can't prove you're a disciple of Jesus because you have a church membership certificate. There's only one way to prove you're a disciple of Jesus. That's to live like Jesus. So, and, and if that feels a little hard, we can set our sights just a little bit below and say, well, now I'll try and live like the apostles because at least they were men. <laughs> they were humans, you know. Paul says that. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says in one of the places in his letters. Follow me while I follow Christ. Um, That's why I think it's good to have examples, holy examples, the lives of of the holy men and women of God throughout the ages that we call saints, if you will, whether that's modern-day people right here that you've known growing up in church or the ones from the ages past. It's important to follow their example, to learn from them. They're, They're humans like us that face the same temptations we do. Um, which, in it, which, by the way, I'll just throw in there, you know, Jesus Christ, that's why Jesus Christ was human. He's God and human. Because as a human, he faced every temptation we do, but yet did not sin. It was the human Jesus that was nailed to the cross and beaten and shattered and, and died. And, and so, but then was resurrected so that we could one day be resurrected as well. Okay, so verse 10, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So first he says, abide in me. Now he says, abide in my love. He's just being a little more specific. God is love. John tells us in his letter of 1 John, God is love. To abide in Jesus is to abide in his love. Okay? 
It is to live out his love. If you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So Jesus is tying together the abiding and the keeping. You cannot abide in God's love, in Christ's love, just in your mind. It has to be lived out. We have to keep the commandments. What, what commandments? What, what commandments do you think he's talking about? The Ten Commandments, but even beyond that, what commandments? The command to love. The command to love. St. Paul teaches us in Romans 13 that basically the commandment to love is the fulfillment of all the commandments. If you will love as Christ loves, you'll fulfill every commandment. You won't take God's name in vain. You won't profane the Sabbath. You won't steal from your neighbor. You won't covet this or that. I mean, the Ten Commandments really are wrapped up in love. And that's why Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, when they're trying to trick him, he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He says, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He's repeating back to them Deuteronomy chapter 4. Okay, the great commandment that every Jew knew. But then he says, and I tell you, the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor, meaning love everyone else, as you would yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love is what it's all about. <laughs> and, and he's telling them that here. If you keep, and the only way we prove that we love Jesus is by keeping his commandments. Our life has to show it. So he says, uh, if you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What is it that allowed Jesus to live a perfect human life? The perfect love of his Father. The perfect love of his Father. He abided in his Father's love, and he's asking us to abide in his love, just like he did his Father's love. And I don't know about you, but the only way I know to do that is to just... 24-7, 365 days a year, be in love with Jesus. Be in love with Jesus. You know, when I first became a Christian, and I, I really, a, 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 you know, I, there's different ways to think of that, but when I really became aware of my Christian life as a young adult man and my need to live a Christian life, I was a little uncomfortable with that phraseology. Love in Jesus, being in love with Jesus. I don't know why, I just thought, you know, because as a human being, uh, we have these hang-ups with love. Maybe our parents didn't love us perfectly. Maybe we didn't, you know, we didn't see a good example. We just, you know, we, we figure out we need to love our spouses and we fall in love. But even then we figure out, is that a godly love or is that a human love? Or, you know, we're, we're always these hang-ups with love, you know. But yet love, I began to learn over time. So, I, you know, we'd sing the song, and it's, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, I sing it because everybody else is singing it. And I'm not that I don't love Jesus. This, I'm talking about when I was young, okay, 30-some years ago. And I'm thinking, do I really, though? What, what does that mean? And it took years, it took time for me to figure out what it meant to love Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And I don't think we can truly love Jesus like that until we realize 
fully realize what he has done for us in our redeeming. Um, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be a, 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 a an Israelite in Egypt on the night of the Passover. To hear all those wailing screams of the children dying, of the firstborn dying, of every age. And then to wake, and then to realize that that angel had passed over your house. To realize, and then the next day to walk free. I mean, after 400 years of slavery, to walk free. Wow. And, and then that, just a realization of that, I can't imagine what that was like. I can't imagine what it was like to have been John or Peter or James or somebody kind of looking at the cross from afar, and some of them probably weren't even there looking because they were so scared and afraid. But when they realized that Jesus truly died for them, when they saw the blood and they saw the beating, I mean, how do you not love when you really realize what God has done for you? That's what draws us into love. And then we have to go a step further and begin to share that love. Because love held is not real love. Love is always giving. Love is always giving. We receive love, we have to give love away. Love is always giving. Um, So Jesus says, he closes this section by saying to them, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is the essence of God's people. It should be the essence of God's people. We should be marked by joy. Remember in the last section we studied, Jesus said, My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give, but Jesus has a peace that transcends the world's idea of peace. Well, he has a joy that transcends the idea of the world's joy, too. What is the joy of Jesus? What is this joy that he wants us to remain in? It's the ability to have peace in your heart, faith in your soul, love in your spirit, no matter what the circumstances are. No matter what the circumstances are. Whether you're having the worst day of your life or the best day of your life, if you can sing glory to the Lord, boy, that's joy. That's the joy Jesus is talking about. And you know, it's so easy to sing, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? It's so easy to sing that when things are going good. Not as easy to sing it when things aren't going so good. But yet, he says, we can. That's part of the miracle of transformation by abiding in his love. It can happen. It will happen if we let it. Um... It takes time, though. Maturing in the Holy Spirit takes time. I'm not there yet. Do I have down days? Absolutely, I do. Just ask my family. I mean, am I perfectly joyful just like Jesus? No. Wish I was. I want to be. Okay. We will be, but you know what? I'm not even going to set. I'm not even going to rest on that. I'm going to say I got to keep striving to be in this world. Because without that striving, we have no call to holiness. It's not good enough to say, oh, we will be then. Let's go for it now. With the promise, knowing you're right, we will be then. But God wants us to know we can be now. We can be joyful now. 
wow, I don't know how to do that yet. I'm still working on it. So I'm working with you through this. Well, we've come to almost the top of the hour. I've got a funeral service to do later this afternoon, so I probably should stop there. We're at a good breaking point. Um, let me share this this idea as closing. Isaiah 27, 6. Read to you Isaiah 27, 6. Isaiah 27, 6 says this. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Those who come. He shall cause to take root. You want to come to Jesus? He's going to cause you to take root. That means to stay in the vine. And Israel, that is the church. The church is Israel. You need to understand that. Israel didn't go away. The church is Israel. Paul goes into deep words about this in in the book of the Romans. We are grafted in. Not all Israel are those that are children of of the seed of Abraham, but rather the seed of the promise. It's Greeks and Gentiles. We are Israel. And God is fulfilling his promise right there in Isaiah 27, 6. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament did not do that. But we are. The church of Jesus Christ is filling the world with love and budding with fruit. And we need to keep it going. Make sense? A little bit? Any questions, thoughts, comments? Before we close, what do you think? I probably didn't do a real good job of explaining all that. This is a really good chapter, and we're just barely getting into it. But uh, there's a lot more I wanted to say. I had in my notes here, I missed talking to you about about the story of Joseph. Maybe I'll pick up with that next week. The story of Joseph even has some bearing on this that uh, <clears throat> I had missed over in my notes. But uh, we'll, we'll save that for next week. There is some soup back there that you're welcome to have if you want. It's left over from last night. It's just a minestrone soup. More than welcome to have some. Uh, But uh, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for time together in your word. Thank you for the gift and presence of your Holy Spirit among us. We pray that you would simply wash over anything I teach that's wrong and that you would come into our lives and spirits and our praise and help us to be filled with your fruit, the fruit of your love, that we would remain in your life. Teach us, O oh Lord, how to do just this. We offer these prayers now in this whole time of study in Jesus' strong name. In the name of our Lord and Savior who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.